Today's podcast is sponsored by Google. Each new day online is a balancing act for parents. You like your child to explore the digital world safely, but also want to protect the precious offline moments you enjoy together. Google's Family Link app helps parents set digital ground rules for their child's Android device. Approve or block app downloads, set limits on screen time, and even create a bedtime for your child's phone or tablet. Family Link lets you choose a balance that's right for you and your family. To find out more and see how Google can help, search Google Family Link. Hello and welcome to Women of Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in Sheffield. Her father was a stonemason and her mother a nursery nurse. She went to Hull University to read British politics and legislative studies before spending a year working as parliamentary aide for Jacob Rees-Mogg. She also had various jobs working for a casino, a betting shop and Pizza Hut. After contesting for a seat in Parliament in 2015 and 2017, my guest, then aged just 26, was elected as MP for Bishop Auckland in the 2019 election. It was the first time a Conservative had ever won there. Since being in Parliament, she has set up an all-parliamentary group and started hosting her own show on GB News, The Political Correction. My guest today is Deanna Davison. So Deanna, thank you very much for joining us today. We are at Tory conference. Everyone has left. Just the two of us literally sitting on a stage looking out at a load of empty chairs. In what was the spectator conference events room. And I think between us, we probably got a few hours sleep last night. Yes, but we are still perky. Exactly. We can get through this. Now, before we get on with the podcast, I was just going to ask you about the Tory scum badges Mm -hmm. that you've been um, dishing out at a conference. And that you've probably been the person who's been amassing the biggest crowds when you're walking around. Can you explain to listeners what they are? Yeah, well, amassing the biggest crowds because people want free merchandise, I think. I think that's why. So, as you'll know, at the Labour conference, a fringe event, Angela Rayner referred to, allegedly referred to the, the sort of cabinet as Tory scum. And so I thought, well, why not? Why not embrace this? I mean, I think there is a really serious sort of debate to be had around the sort of abusive language that's used in politics anyway. But, you know, I, it's not the first time that I've sort of been referred to as Tory scum. I pretty much read it on my Twitter every single day. And the thing is, I am proud to be a Conservative. I really am. So if people are going to brand me Tory scum anyway, I'll wear it loudly and proudly on the lapel pin. And a few other people seem to agree with me. I think there are 500 badges in total printed and I've got about six left in my pocket. So um, a pretty good crowd, part of, part of the scum club. And she managed to get any cabinet ministers wearing it? I did, yeah. <laughs> so quite a few ministers did take them. At one point, Oliver Dowden wore one on a panel event he was doing, um, which was fantastic to see. And I did give one to the Prime Minister as well, but he didn't put it on straight away, though I'm sure he uh, really cherishes it. Yeah, he must have forgotten that for his speech, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's one of the errors there. <laughs> now, on this podcast, we like to begin by talking just briefly about your early life. And one of the questions we ask everyone to begin, really, is would you describe yours as a happy childhood? But I know, obviously, when you were a teen, you lost your father, something mm-hmm. you've been um, speaking about in Parliament. So how would you describe your childhood? I mean, early childhood, for sure, was really happy. I mean, I don't really remember anything apart from just being happy, enjoying myself and having the love of my family, which I think is a great way to be able to look back on on that early life. But yes, when I was 13, my father was killed in a single punch assault, which was a huge shock to the family. I mean, he went to the pub and never came home in a really kind of shocking incident where he got hit once and died instantly. And you don't expect that to happen. So it really does kind of change your outlook on on so many things and it had a huge impact on my family. My mum and my dad had been together for I think 16 years when he died. For for my nan, my dad's mum, he was her only child. 
and no parent should ever have to lose a child and certainly not in such tragic circumstances. So strangely, it'd be easy to look back on that period as being really unhappy and certainly there were points of intense sadness. But the thing I remember the most really was kind of how close my relationship with my mum and my nan got. So that was a kind of real silver lining of, of the whole thing. My nan became my absolute best friend. So yeah, it, it was a dark period, but actually there was an awful lot of light that came from it. When it comes to, I suppose, growing up, you attended Sheffield High School, which is a private school, but you're mm-hmm. on a full scholarship. So were you particularly academic? What, what were kind of, were you a geeky child? Or? <laughs> I was such a geek as a child. I mean, it's so many members of kind of my family used to call me Hermione because I was that little swat in school who uh, was a bit of a goody two-shoes. So yeah, I mean, I loved school. I loved maths in particular. I loved creative writing. I was really into sport as well. Yeah, I, I can never really remember any particular bad memories of, of school and of lessons, which shows the sort of geek that I was. So when it came to kind of choosing secondary school, it was actually a, a teacher from my primary school that recommended I go forward for the entrance exam for the private girls school. And it was something that really my family had never considered because you think about private school, initially you think about the cost of it and how frankly we probably wouldn't have been able to afford it. But my teacher was adamant I should give it a go and try for the scholarship and I got it. I got a full scholarship funded half by the HSBC and half by the Girls' Day School Trust and it was incredible. I mean, the school's ethos and the way that it really tried to build, you know, not only kind of the academic side of things but actually confidence as well, which I think is something that's really important, particularly for young women. There was never a point at all at my school where I thought that I was excluded from any kind of job because I was a woman. And I think that's really important. And you went on to study politics at university. Mm-hmm. Was politics discussed around the dinner table when you were growing up? Absolutely not. And we, we didn't have a dinner table, to be fair. We didn't have a dining room. So it was, uh, <laughs> it was, it was dinner on the sofa in front of the telly most of the time. But no, we, we weren't at all a political household. I mean, I, I, growing up, have no real memory of politics, except I think I can remember seeing some news footage of some Tony Blair rally thing with lots of union jacks when I was really really little but that's probably about all that politics cut through which is it's strange now given how kind of much a part of my life it is that it really wasn't growing up my mum had never voted I don't think my dad had ever voted before he died my grandparents were kind of your classic swing voters they voted for you know Tory and the Thatcher and Labour and the Blair and we didn't really discuss it we probably discussed the issues a little bit depending on what was going on and kind of current affairs a little bit but no, certainly never politics. And I, I knew nothing. I, I didn't know what the different political parties particularly stood for. I thought as a kid that Winston Churchill was a Labour prime minister. That tells you the extent of my knowledge. So if we're talking about going to study politics and then obviously we mentioned the introduction working for Jacob rees mm-hmm. Can you talk us through how we get to that point <laughs> between, um, you know, not knowing the party Winston Churchill belongs to to then suddenly, um, you know, working for, a, you know, a true blue and Jacob rees it, it was from sixth form. So I started to study politics A-level, genuinely knowing basically nothing about politics. And the first thing that we were taught was what the different political parties were all about. And it was taught, you know, to give my school, my teachers an awful lot of credit. It was taught in a very kind of non-partisan way. It was, it was just kind of, here's the information. And we watched a few kind of documentaries and I was really taken by, I suppose to actually to take a step back, I, I kind of had to think about if I'm going to associate with a party, what are the values that I grew up with? What are the things that really kind of make me tick and the values my family had and all of that? And for me, it was kind of the key things that really drove me and made me me were the facts that my family believed in real hard graft, believe that if you want to get on in life, you really have to, to work hard and kind of build yourself up and kind of do it for yourself believed an awful lot in personal responsibility but in aspiration you know all of us wanted to build a better life for for ourselves for our family and for, for the next generation 
Yeah, I remember my dad was kind of the guy that always used to watch Only Fools and Horses and was really taken in by this time next year, Rodney will be millionaires. So that sense of aspiration was so huge. And for me, when I was learning about the different parties at the time, which was around about, I don't know, 2009-ish, so just before getting ready to build up to the 2010 election. So there was politics going on. The only party really that seemed to speak those values to me was the Conservative Party. And then watching these documentaries, there was one about Thatcher. And to some extent, you know, as a young woman, seeing this incredibly strong character, standing up not only for the values that really drive me, but also making it right to the top at a time when that was really difficult was a, a bit of an inspiration. So I decided to join the party at the ripe old age of 16. And at that point, did anyone call you Tory scum or did that come quite a bit later? <laughs> no, there was no Tory scum at age 16, thankfully, but um, there's been plenty of it since. Now, you go to work for Jacobs Roofs and Wild, is that just after you finished university? Or? So it was actually part of my university degree, the British Politics and Legislative Studies course at Hull has a sandwich year where you go and work. It's designed to go work in Parliament, but some people go and work for think tanks or for political parties. And so I thought about who I might want to work for. And while I was at uni, during a debate on, I think, the AV referendum, for some reason, a real sexy debate, which shows you the sort of cool kid I was at uni, Jacob Rees-Mogg gave this amazing speech, and I hadn't heard of him before then. I was like, oh my gosh, who is this guy? And started to kind of follow him, have an awful lot of respect for the sort of parliamentarian he is. So bumped into him at conference, actually, and sort of wandered over and said, oh, I just wondered if, you know, this might be something that I could do in your office in the next year. And it worked out. So I went to work for him for a year as part of my placement. Yeah. Can you give us a day in the life working for Jacob Rees-Mogg? Obviously quite an eccentric character. <laughs> and if you're coming in that role, you know, what does it look like? Are you having to get him lunch? <laughs> it's, it was just like now being an MP and sort of knowing a lot of staffers and seeing how different MP's offices work. In many ways, just a day of any kind of parliamentary staffer. I did mainly kind of policy-based work and bits of research for, for Jacob. And so a day in the life was, you know, get in, check the emails, <laughs> write policy briefs and that sort of thing. So kind of what a lot of my staff do now, bless them. But there's one, <laughs> one, one bit of a difference is that when I'm kind of either approving letters or emails, you know, with a usually a pink pen because that's how I go, I'll put like little notes on if there's anything that I want amending. I used to often get notes in Latin from Jacob, which was, uh, which was not, yeah, it took a little bit of getting used to. Do you understand Latin? Uh, no, <laughs> but Google is my friend. So, um, but no, it was, it was really incredible. And, you know, the amount of support he gave me, not just kind of professionally through working for him, um, but personally as well, because when I worked for him, I, not to go to X Factor Sob Story, but my nan was diagnosed with lung cancer. I found it really hard and he gave me a lot of personal support as well as kind of really helping to mentor me and actually supporting me when I went to try and get my place on the parliamentary candidates list. And just on the subject of personal life, one thing I wanted to mention was what often comes up if you give your name is Bride and Prejudice. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> um, it was a programme which was ultimately looking at your marriage with a Tory councillor who's 35 years mm-hmm. your senior. So I just wanted two things on that. One, you know, did that relationship have an impact on your politics? Mm-hmm. And two, you know, about the show itself, you know, how you found that. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the relationship, I don't think it had an impact on my politics per se because, you know, my views are my views and I kind of am willing to discuss and debate them, but I'm not sort of easily swayed unless there's very persuasive evidence, you know. So John and I differed on, you know, a few kind of areas, but, you know, we talk politics really sensibly, I think, as any couple who talks politics do, really. So I don't think so, but one of the things that I, you know, would credit John with was he was a really, really hardworking local councillor. So it showed me kind of the value of just doing your casework, actually, and actually responding to residents and things. So I think in in that sense, it was really valuable and showed me how much of an impact you can have, how much of a positive impact you can have if you are 
elected on the kind of people who elected you. So, yeah, in that sense, it, it did so shape the practical side more so than the actual political side, I suppose. About the show itself. <laughs> yeah, I would be too scared to do a reality show. I, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a path I foresaw myself going down, I must admit. I mean, we were approached, John was approached, kind of by chance. He used to get a lot of, being a counsellor and, and kind of quite locally well-known, he used to get approached by a lot of TV production companies asking if he knew anyone in his community who were interested in, who might be interested in taking part in all these different kinds of shows. And he got this one and it said, well, we're looking for people in unusual relationships to kind of normalise and all this sort of thing. And he sent it to me with a sort of laughing emoji thing. And I just replied like, let's do it, ha, ha, ha kind of thing. And then he said, I might email them and see what it's about just for giggles. And we, we kind of did and had a chat with the production team. And I was really uncertain, to be honest, about doing it because I didn't know that I really wanted people kind of having a look in on my, my personal life. And obviously having political aspirations, I didn't know if that would be helpful or a hindrance really. But um, yeah, we did it. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and on the show, forgive me because I haven't, I couldn't find a version to watch online. I'm I was glad, trying. I'm glad it's, yeah. it's not there anymore. <laughs> it's, yeah, so there isn't that. But you're trying to convince your grandparent that the relationship is okay. Is that the plot? Yeah, to some extent. Yeah. So, so effectively, you know, when John and I first kind of started dating more seriously, being such an age gap, it wasn't very easy for my granddad, particularly because he's a very protective figure in my life and, you know, just wanted to make sure that I was OK and wasn't making bad decisions, basically. So the, the kind of plot of the show was effectively me convincing him that it's fine and that I'm going to marry this guy and that he should be supportive. But to be honest, I mean, he was largely supportive anyway. And I will admit the show was so dramatised. And it's given me a really interesting insight into reality TV. You know, you expect shows like you sort of made in Chelsea's and whatnot to be massively kind of overhyped to add to the drama. But it was interesting. And one of the one of the most like weird things that I took from it was how yeah, kind of set up things are. And I don't mean in terms of the big shock factor stuff, but just I'd have to walk into a room three or four times so that they could get the right shot when I'm supposed to be just walking in and saying hi to the hairdresser. And it's kind of, you're supposed to act all natural. And, and now, if ever I watch things like, I don't know, Don't Tell the Bride or whatever, I can always tell. I watch and I'm like, they've been asked to do that three times. Look, she's really uncomfortable. <laughs> so in terms of the, sort of the insights into reality TV, I guess it was helpful, though I have no plans to do any more reality TV yeah. in future. But no regrets. No, I mean, you know, if I could go back, would I do it again? Um, I don't know, to be honest, I haven't really thought about it because I don't like to dwell too much. Now, moving on from that, you mentioned the introduction that you, despite your very young age, you, you've <laughs> committed a very high number of elections um, <laughs> when it comes to being a parliamentary candidate. So you know the MP for Bishop Auckland, and that is the third election mm -hmm. that you've been in. Now, I think that probably hints to how you know, turbulent British politics has been that we've had yes. you know, elections in such quick succession. But I just wanted to ask, can you talk us through the seats you first went for mm -hmm. and you know were they what you would call no hoper seats mm -hmm. well Katie, no seat is a no hoper seat in politics yeah, off message <laughs> well the, the first seat that i stood in was um in hull in hull north which is a seat that i lived in and went to university in and i'd been there for a good few years by then and you know for me it was it was kind of twofold one genuinely really caring about the community and wanting to kind of help play my part in shaping it but if there is such a thing as a no hope seat at that point, Hull North may have fit the bill. It would have been a really, really difficult one to crack. But I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I'd campaigned an awful lot before then, so it wasn't really new to me. But it was my first time being a candidate outside of kind of bits and bobs of local elections, but on a much different scale. So that was really fascinating, kind of actually really leading the campaign and whatnot. 
Yeah, so that was Hull. That was 2015, which was fantastic. But needless to say, I did not win, but did slightly cut the Labour majority, which is always a bonus. Then, as you say, the kind of turbulence of British politics meant that two years later, we were right back at it, which I never expected. Yeah, certainly didn't think I'd have fought three elections by the age of 26. I'd sort of, you know, when I first decided maybe I want to become an MP, I sort of thought I'll maybe try for the first one at 30, you know, once I'd built up a bit of experience or whatever. So 2017 came along and I was selected in Sedgefield, Tony Blair's old stomping ground and, you know, kind of a bit of an iconic seat for the Labour Party, really. And it was a six and a half thousand Labour majority but had been coming down so much since the Blair years that it was actually on the um, the marginal seats list and on the, on the target seats list at the time. So that was a completely different experience because you go from in Hull having very little resource and just kind of enjoying it and making it a very kind of organic ground campaign to Sedgefield where I had funding and leaflets and people and it was a completely different ball game and there was so much more attention on the seat, particularly with it being Sedgefield because it's such a story. You know, if the Conservatives were to say Sedgefield, it'd show a real seismic shift in British politics. That was 2017, which sadly, given the state of the 2017 general election, which I don't think really pleased many of our activists, given the result wasn't quite what we were hoping for. Yeah, I mean, that was the Theresa May election, wasn't it? That was. Where she lost to her Tory majority. So It wasn't um, ideal. <laughs> could, could you feel the point where it turned? Yes, the day of the manifesto launch, genuinely, which often in politics, things shift, but you can't always find the exact moment. But in the 2017 general election, the afternoon of the manifesto launch, I knocked on a door and it was, I think, you know, it was a family that had voted Conservative in the past and went, went in and the woman came out. Well, why am I going to have to sell my house to pay for my care? And I just thought, okay, because I'd read the manifesto and I saw it was actually a really positive step in social care, but we got the messaging so completely wrong. And I felt it from then on, from from the first few weeks of the campaign, knocking on doors where people were saying, oh, I've voted Labour all my life and I'm thinking about voting for you. It completely changed. And it was really, as a geek who's interested in politics, it was a really fascinating thing to actually witness on the ground. But yeah, it meant needless to say, I did not win Sedgefield either. But you did win Bishop Auckland <laughs> in 2019. And that campaign, obviously very different in the sense, well, it had some parallels. Boris Johnson looked very far ahead as Theresa May had done, but mm-hmm. there wasn't that turning point where mm-hmm. you know, things completely flipped. You were also very visible in mm-hmm. that campaign. It became quite quickly when it was all, but you know, can the Tories you know, win the Red Wall? I think you were one of the people who was you know, most closely covered and lots of people thought you would win. How much pressure did you feel on you know, election night? Mm-hmm. It was really strange. On on polling day itself, I was frankly a bit of a wreck. I was so nervous because, you know, you put your heart and soul into these campaigns. And I'd been fighting the seat, not just for the sort of short election period, but for kind of about 15 months by that point. And so many people had helped. So many people had put in their time, their energy, or even their money to, to really help me get in. And I just felt so much pressure to deliver for them more than anything. But also, you know, when I was knocking on doors speaking to people, they were saying they felt so let down by their local representative and wanted something better. And so I felt a lot of pressure to kind of deliver for them as well. So on polling day, I wasn't great. I had my dog with me all day just to kind of as my therapy animal. And he did escape on polling day from my friend's house and ran down a country lane, which was not a great way to help sort of lighten the mood. I'm sort of chasing after him while cars are kind of behind me, which was great. But um, I digress a little bit, just a funny memory from polling day. But when it when it actually came to the election count, though, I don't know if the adrenaline had hit or worn off or something, but some strange concoction happened that meant I felt this weird sense of calm. Kind of, you know, what will be will be. The polls looked good, but we'd been burned by that in the past. 
And I just kind of thought, I've been having great conversations. It's been really positive. I've run a really good campaign. Frankly, I'm 26. If I don't win, this is not the end of the world. I have time. And I love this community. I'd, I'd move there. I'd move my job there. And I thought this is a place that I really want to settle anyway. And yeah, then the exit poll came out and suddenly it was kind of, ooh, we might be okay. <laughs> Now, just a few final questions when it comes to, you know, what you're obviously doing now from Parliament. Now, we just mentioned the single punch campaign. Mm -hmm. It seems to be gaining lots of traction. Would you say that's kind of your biggest achievement since entering Parliament? don't know that I'd really call it an achievement yet because we haven't, I mean, we've raised awareness, which is a really positive thing, but we haven't got to the end goal yet. So I did launch the all-party parliamentary group on single punch assaults or one-punch assaults. And part of what we're doing as the APPG is I'm actually carrying out an inquiry into one punch assaults, looking at sentencing, looking at victim support and a whole host of other factors, really, sort of the response of police forces across the country, how they react to these things, trying to get a sense of the scale. So I suppose the, that because right now is it's very slack. Like, how would you explain it? You know, the sense from a lot of the, the families of victims that we've spoken to is that they feel the sentences are far too lenient there isn't a proper recognition of the actual damage that is caused by these assaults. Now, it's really difficult because for the most part, people throwing a punch do not expect that it's going to kill. You know, you, it's very difficult to prove that it's premeditated intent to kill because I think in the vast majority of cases it isn't, which makes it a really difficult one for, for sentencing for obvious reasons. But certainly, you know, when you've lost a loved one in one of these horrific incidents, you really want a sense of kind of closure and a true sense of justice. And so many families feel they aren't getting that. And so I really want to get into the root causes of, of why that is. And a lot of that is around sentencing. So that's one of the things that we're investigating. And the plan is, I haven't really set a deadline on it per se, but probably over the next year to 18 months, we want to pull together a set of proposals of how we can make this better. I think victim support is a really important one, actually. And we're also hoping to run a bit of an educational campaign too. We're working with a charity called One Punch UK who go out in schools and Young Offenders Institutes and, and really speak about how much danger you can, or, or how dangerous your fists can be as weapons. They can be as deadly as any knife or, or gun. So we're, we're working with them too. So I think it's hard to say it's my biggest achievement because I don't feel like I've achieved it yet, as it were. But certainly it's probably the work that I'm the most proud of. Now, we've mentioned the Root Conservative Party conference. Mm -hmm. uh, we just heard Boris Johnson's speech, a very positive speech. But one of the things he had to address in it is this national insurance rise, mm -hmm. which is, you know, initially for the NHS backlog and then allegedly for social care later down the line. You opposed this. Mm -hmm. um, why is that? Do you think, is it what we've heard on the fringes of this conference, which is, you know, it goes against conservative values? What was it about it? I mean, there's an element of that for yeah. sure. But for me, it's not quite that that kind of ideological. I guess the first point is I'm really glad the government is tackling this issue of social care because it needs to happen. It's been kicked down the road for far too long by, by successive governments. And it's right that we're really looking to tackle it. And I think for me, that means we absolutely have to get it right. And part of my concern initially was that this proposal was kind of pulled together. We read about it in the papers before getting anything official. And we didn't get much time to debate it or to discuss it and to try and work with ministers to try and improve it before it actually hit the kind of the books as it yes, were to vote fast. on and you know that shows a sense of urgency in wanting to tackle this issue on, on the positive sort of outlook but I just felt like we needed more time so uh, on the ways and means motion I actually abstained and said this in my speech saying I need more time there are issues we need to look at things like how there's going to be a cap on the cost of care for some of the wealthiest people who can afford to pay it at the expense of taxpayers things like the fact that you know you can keep a certain 
certain value of your property. But if your property is worth less, as many properties in the red wall are, then you're still going to have to lose a very large proportion of your asset. Whereas if you've got a very expensive house in a, a leafy suburb somewhere in the southeast, you lose a much smaller proportion of your asset. Things like that were, were kind of real concerns I really wanted to, to try and help kind of shape and make a little bit better. And also, you know, we did make a manifesto pledge saying that we wouldn't raise national insurance. It was in the guarantees at the start of the manifesto. And I think trust in politics is really important. Now, I think people appreciate that a pandemic has changed things a little bit. But to me, national insurance is not the right way to address this at all. It's a tax on workers, it's a tax on jobs at a time when the economy hasn't quite bounced back yet. So I'd just like to see more discussion, really. I just don't think the proposal is as good as we could have made it, but certainly there is still time to shape, shape it a bit more widely. So I'm certainly trying to have those constructive conversations now, even you know, despite my, my naughty rebellion. And have you had any, uh, you know, wise souls, just colleagues who've been there longer say, well, be careful, because if you rebel, you know, your career is going to you know, <laughs> ha- hit problems or anything like that? I have. I've had a lot of people coming to me and kind of sharing advice. And again, not in patronising ways or, or anything, but really just kind of trying to look out for me. The advice has varied a little bit, depending on who I've spoken to. But of course, you know, you don't necessarily go into government, uh, into government, God, no, I'm not there. You don't go into parliament. You don't go into parliament to rebel. You know, you go in because you believe in, the kind of outlook and vision of your party. But I think one of the things I believe in firmly is that you have to be able to wake up the next morning and look yourself in the mirror and think that you did the right thing. And you have to marry up, you know, loyalty to the party, what's right for your constituents and your own conscience. Sometimes the three can be incredibly conflicted. But I think if you can wake up the next morning, look yourself in the in the eye in the mirror and say, yeah, I think this was right and I do it again. I think that's really important regardless of the fact that, you know, for my own career prospects, it probably hasn't been the wisest thing to do, especially not a few days before a reshuffle. But <laughs> frankly, you know, I'm not there to, to fast track up the ministerial ladder anyway. I'm there to really try and make a difference with Bishop. And just final two questions. The one I wanted to ask was, when it comes to, I suppose, uh, Conservatives that you, I know, look up to or think, you know, they're leading, it seems as though you and Liz Truss have quite a few... I think common causes mm-hmm. and I think once you were going to go to a Taylor Swift gig together <laughs> oh ever, my gosh yeah yeah did that ever happen it I mean, didn't because of the COVID pandemic gigs. of course um yeah myself Ellie from my team and then Liz and Sophie her spad I know Liz is a Taylor fan and Sophie's a Taylor fan and Ellie's a Taylor fan and I'm a Taylor fan and I know you're a Taylor, yeah, a Taylor fan, fan as well everyone here is a Taylor fan it's great <laughs> and Taylor was going to be performing at the the Hyde Park Festival and so we got tickets and the plan was to go together and then obviously because of the pandemic it was cancelled and, and never happened, which was a shame because I think it would have been a good laugh, actually. Aside from sharing taste in Taylor Swift, no, I, I think Liz is a really incredible politician and I was so pleased to see her promoted. I think for me, the thing that I admire the most is, I mean, one, the fact that her outlook is so kind of positive and ambitious and optimistic. She's a free marketer, as am I. She really is a kind of freedom lover and I think that's so important you know freedom is is so central to kind of what we as as Brits believe in you know so I really kind of admire her but it's also the the really confident and unapologetic way that she goes about promoting what it is that she believes in I I find it really genuinely inspiring and also she also likes a colourful suit which is always a bonus and I just wonder as a as a woman do you learn anything about because I feel like you look at Liz Truss's career people have often kind of suggested she's not serious enough or kind of being underwritten slightly, particularly things like social media. When she had the Instagram account, I remember, you know, lots of kind of more traditional, perhaps, you know, always been like, I'm thinking that's not how you should do things. But yet clearly it now has a great office mm-hmm. of state. So I wonder if there's anything that you see from that, which... Well, I, I think Liz is not afraid to, to break the mould and do things her own way. And that's something that I really admire. I do find it really frustrating 
And I think sometimes it is a bit misogynistic as well that women tend to get that criticism more, like you just don't take this seriously. You know, I get it the same, but actually, if you are to think it through logically, social media is a platform where you get more engagement if you have slightly more fun content, which then means you build up a following, which then means when you have very serious things to say, it reaches a wider audience. So it's not just putting it on to be fun and for the sake of it. It actually has a, a wider purpose, which is because... You know, when I'm putting kind of things on about how this great burger or whatever it might be, which is not exactly the most serious political content, it does help you build a following that that means when you have serious things to say, you know, the actual messages about what it is that I stand for as a politician, what the Conservative Party stands for, the excellent things we're doing, it reaches a wider audience and really helps kind of with our, our outreach. So, yeah, I do find it frustrating that that is a criticism that's been leveled at Liz and at myself. And I think there is this kind of still, sadly, this air of kind of misogyny around women in positions of power, which, you know, we need to tackle, but seeing Liz get to foreign secretary is definitely a great way to start. And the final question is one we ask everyone on this mm -hmm. podcast, which is just, you know, forget good advice. <laughs> what is the worst <laughs> advice you've ever been given? The worst advice I've ever been given, um, I won't say who it was, but if they're listening, they'll probably know. I remember when I first was standing as a parliamentary candidate in Hull, I was doing this kind of little profile interview for the local newspaper. And... I said to them that I wanted to talk about the story about my dad because it's so central to kind of what drives me and why I got involved in politics in the first place. And they said, oh, no, 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 don't do that. And I sort of said, why? They're like, oh, you know, you don't want to talk too much about your personal life. You want to talk about, you know, your politics and all that sort of stuff. And yes, it's a profile, but, you know, that stuff is, is like quite dark and, you know, it, it just doesn't give off a good impression. And I kind of was so young and probably a little bit naive at the time was kind of like, oh, OK, so I didn't open up about the story with my dad for a really long time. And actually, it felt not only dishonest to myself and kind of, you know, against, you know, the very reasons I got into politics in the first place. I think it just didn't give people a, a real impression of who I was as a politician. And then when I started opening up about it, I think people really understood me a bit more and warmed to me a little bit more. So that is probably the worst piece of advice I have been given, I reckon. That is bad advice. Really bad advice. <laughs> Thank you, Deanna. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk. Oh,